Accelerating Careers in Real Estate with Nick Carman. Brought to you by McDonald & Company. The Accelerating Careers in Real Estate podcast is now supported by the Urban Land Institute. To find out more about becoming a member, please follow the link in the show notes, remembering to quote the promo code ACRE to take advantage of all the benefits of our partnership. More details at the end of this podcast. So this evening, I'm sat with David Tuig, founding partner of Word Search Place. Word Search Place is the real estate consultancy business focused on vision, place, and execution strategy. And David and the team have advised on over 300 million square foot of development globally. Now, David's no stranger to mega projects, as between the years 2018 to 2017, he was a chief development officer, head of design and placemaking for Battersea Power Station Development Company. And David began his career with Treasury Holdings in Dublin before leading them to China, back to London, and to begin work in the power station in 2008. So, David, thank you very much for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me. Now, we've got a lot of ground to cover, so um, let's get started. How does Chapter 1 begin for you? In Dublin, as you said, although I must say your intro is uh, far more glamorous than the reality of my career, but uh, <laughs> thank you for putting such a good spin on it. Um, yeah, Dublin, um, I, uh, I, say I spent a fair few years in college, probably a protracted college career more than most trying to find where I should land, having started architecture, and then sort of ending up in, in real estate economics. But I guess all the way through college, I, I kind of knew I wanted to be in active development. I think a lot of people back then particularly went into real estate, maybe because it's where they ended up in their sort of exam results and wasn't really first choice. I think these days we see a lot more people choosing to go into urbanism, real estate and placemaking and city shaping. It wasn't so much back then, but... I knew I wanted to go into development more so than agency or anything like that. And in, in Ireland, at the time, there was only one real developer. You know, there was a lot of development, but one that I had respect for that was so ambitious and the, the driving change and doing quality buildings. And that was Treasury Holdings. And thankfully, I guess I, I, I come from a country that's small enough. You know, if the world works in six degrees of separation, I guess Ireland works in about one degree of separation, if, if two max, where you always know somebody knows somebody. You know, every, everybody hears Irish people meet in a pub. It's like, oh, do you know this person? It's like, yeah, of course they do. So knowing all the way through college that I wanted to work for Treasury Holdings, every time a cousin or a family member or a friend would say, oh, what do you want to do when you leave college? You know, you always get asked that sort of Christmas question. And I was, I'd always say, I want to protect holdings. And eventually, you know, it didn't take long before somebody says, oh, well, you know, actually, I know Johnny Ronan. Um, I can put in a word. And so they did. And Johnny said, the message came back saying, right, well, tell him to give me a call and, and we'll, we'll, we'll have a see. As long as he's a goer, as long as he's a goer, uh, we, we might give him a chance. And um, I spent uh, a lot of time chasing him, I guess, as the CEO of a, of a real estate business, you're quite busy and, and taking calls from graduates is not high on your priority list. And so every time I'd call them, I'd be like, oh yeah, well, call me when you graduate or I'm too busy or I'm on holiday or one time he was on the bike. And it was like, you know, after about six or seven months of these calls not being returned, I was like, shit. Um, you know, I was kind of doing really well. I was sort of top of my class, but I, I, I kind of turned down every interview with, you know, the DTZs and CBREs. I didn't, I had no interest. And it came to the point where I passed graduation where I actually hadn't done any interviews holding out for this one job. And um, I, I kind of had to slightly do something a bit underhand or, or more creative, let's say. 
Um, so after getting on another call, he was cycling in the in, in France. And he's like, I'm on, I'm, I'm cycling. Call me in a week or two when I get back. And I didn't really have time for that. So I called his PA and uh, looked her up online, called his PA and said, I've just got off the phone with Johnny uh, himself and Richard Barrett, his business partner and founder. They want to meet me uh, first thing Monday morning to talk about an interview. And she's like, sure, no problem. Thank you very much. We'll set that up. So I arrived in in my, you know, I saw the graduate quality suit on a uh, <laughs> on a Monday morning. And in came Rich and Johnny, you know, two of the most successful real estate people in the country. And uh, took one look. He was like, Who the, who's this guy? And uh, but it was great. We ended up chatting for over an hour. They gave a huge amount of time. We had, you know, a lot of crack, you know, good chats. And they said, well, okay, well, you would be working for this person who heads our development team. So if you meet him and he's happy, then you can have a job. And thankfully, uh, it worked out and I started my career there. Really good stuff. Really good stuff. Treasury and, and I think you alluded to those, those sort of characters had a, you know, had a real reputation back then. Um, what did that mean for you in, the, in those sort of those earliest years of your career? What do you think you were, you were learning from them? I look, I, there's a, a couple of parts to that, what I learned from them and, and, and actually the, the ethos or the, the energy within the business. I think first off, look, they were, if you were, if you worked for them or if you were with them, you, you loved it. They played hard, they partied hard, they were the boys around town. And look, as a young sort of graduate, that really appealed to me, you know, you probably watched too many too many copies of, of Wall Street through college and growing up. You know I mean, I was in that sort of stage in my career. It's like, that's what the world's like. And and that really appealed to me. Look, I think in now that I'm sort of 20 years into my career and older, I probably wouldn't be the same environment that would appeal to me now. You know, I'm, now I'm more about collaboration. I don't like the angst. I don't like the that sort of a, a approach anymore. I think, you know, the, the world has moved on. I think even they've moved on since then. But at the time, it was hugely appealing. And it was like, you know, I, I, I'm not, I'm a Leeds fan, so I shouldn't be quoting Manchester United, but I guess it was like ABU, anybody but United in the 90s. If you were a United fan, you were top of the world. And if you weren't, you hated them. And Treasury Holmes was a bit like that. It was, it was awesome to be part of that team. And then, and then the second bit was I just had, you know, the importance of mentorship. And I guess, you know, the big challenge that young graduates having now, and I'm not going to go into like a thing about COVID, but being in the office versus not being in the office and striking that balance. And, you know, the office takes away the chance for the CEO to walk past a graduate and just say, hey, do you want to grab a coffee or do you want to chat? Um, and and those degrees of separation and a bureaucracy, you know, you don't really, if you're a young graduate these days, you're probably already talking to people who work directly for you. And then you don't get that chance to to leapfrog or, or have that moment. And I did have that. Like, it was, it was amazing. Johnny took me to look at his own personal stuff, even his own family farm where he grew up. We looked at that and repositioning as a sort of biotech campus. And Richard was heading up acquisitions and doing amazingly complex JV structures and, and uh, land share agreements with people. And he said, look, come run this with me. And so this was within like a month or two that I was lucky enough to have that. And I still worked on the development side and I still worked for, for Rob, who I then worked with for, you know, 10, 15 years afterwards. But, you know, to have that insight from those two guys and for them to give you the time, it was, it was phenomenally fortunate. I don't know if he gets that, but um, that was, you know, that's, that was career changing right from the start to put you on an arc that, that is probably hard, hard to recreate otherwise. Now maybe maybe I'm thinking about the um, 
your sort of your peers at university who did end up working in in consultancy sort of gigs you know that sort of stereotypical sort of um uh, post-university you know on this sort of conveyor belt to become to becoming sort of chartered you know maybe to make them feel a bit better were there any downsides to to that gig um I didn't get an ABC or whatever they call the professional certification, maybe. Uh, not that I ever would have used it. But um, look, uh, you know, it, everybody's career is different and people enjoy different things, you know. Um, I, you know I wasn't slighting the guys who took that approach. I think, you know, agency is, is hugely interesting in, in its own way. I, I think just probably the architectural side background that I first started with that I didn't stick with in college, I still had that sort of design element of it and I guess what hands-on development gave me was the economics the business side which I love but it also still had enough shaping buildings which was important to me but was there a downside no besides not getting an APC because that isn't offered by development companies or certainly wasn't then no there was no downside it was like it wasn't like working you know I mean like I used to work weekends used to come at five in the morning I'd never leave even if I had nothing to do before the boss left and it was just it was fun because I guess, again, I just happened to land on a company where the people you respected included you. You know, they took you to parties. It wasn't just like run this appraisal and give me the answer. It was like, hey, we've got, you know, this award ceremony tonight or let's go out with this landowner and do dinner or let's just all go on the piss afterwards. You know, it was just, you know, it was a bit of Celtic Tiger. Yes. And, you know, Celtic Tiger may got out of hand. But um, no, it was it was. It was just people that you respected so much, you know, that were so many levels above you in terms of, you know, you coming in as a graduate and them being the owners of, of this hugely successful company. The time that they spent with you was, you know, it was more valuable than any of the bad things that you had to do in terms of late nights or early mornings or running appraisals. It was, um, there was no downside. Now, I'm, I'm not sure if this is a, a two-week trait or a, a treasury holdings um, sort of trait, but... Your career appears uh, appears to be on on a pretty steep trajectory because you spend two years in uh, in Dublin, and then comes a yeah, a very unusual chapter for someone who's sort of only sort of two years into into their first their first career. It's a uh, it's an emigration to China. Tell us a bit more how that how that came about and and what that meant for you as your career. Yeah, uh, oh, wow. I mean, again, you look back and you know, luck and chance. I mean, I'll talk about the detail more in a second, but just before I forget, like the, the, the luck side of it, I mean, it was 2006. So we spent five going out there a little bit. In 2006, I moved there. And at the time, I'd been like, you know, the other option was to stay in Dublin, stay working with Treasury. I now had a bit of a career, so I could get a mortgage. I was thinking about buying a house in Dublin. And like, wow, had I stayed in Dublin, bought a house, you know, we all know what happened to Ireland, you know, 18 months later the biggest global recession 2018, I would have been 40% in negative equity. I would have been paying that off for 20 years and I probably mightn't have kept my job. Just like that wasn't the plan because I didn't see it coming. But like, you know, when I reflect on the, 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 the importance of that decision I made and then that taking me from, from China back to, to Battersea, you know, you've, you maybe luck is, luck is a part of it as well as your own sort of ambition. But no, what happened was uh, a really funny story that the Chinese have this island off of Shanghai called Chongming Island. It's like 36 square kilometers and it's uh, about 32 kilometers off, off of Shanghai. And so because it's, it's disconnected from the mainland, they thought there's an opportunity to build a thoroughbred racing track there because China isn't certified to allow horse racing because you, you, there's disease, there's not 
control of diseases there. And so you're not going to fly in a 50 million pound thoroughbred horse into China that could get a disease that ends up killing it. And so they thought we can land horses in a quarantine area in Shanghai at the airport and then bring them across this new tunnel and bridge to this island where we will build this, you know, a bit like they did in the Middle East and racing in, in Dubai. We can build this new racetrack and then a whole city around it. And I mean, I can't remember the exact numbers. I mean, the first phase that we worked on was 70 million square feet. That was just the first phase. I think it was a town for a quarter of a million people um, around this racetrack. But the racetrack was the centerpiece and, and the Chinese government went to the Middle East and they went to Godolphin, you know, the Middle East uh, horse racing people to say, look, do you want to come and run a track here and then help the real estate around it? And they were like, you know, no, it's not really for us. We're, we're quite focused. But a guy who worked for them, who I won't mention his name, but a guy who worked for them also worked for our wind farm business for Treasury Holdings. And he came to the real estate guys one day and said, this, the Chinese are looking for a racecourse developer. And Godolphin said, no, but it might be worth like reaching out and trying to make um, trying to make contact. So basically, we put together a consortium. It was like, well, Ireland's pretty good at racehorsing, so um, let's pull together a consortium and pretend that we're racehorsing experts. And we flew over and did a huge big presentation, Richard and Johnny and a few others and myself. And they were like, great, let's do it. Let's sign an agreement. So agreement was signed and the prime ministers were there. And all of a sudden we found ourselves with, I don't know how many square kilometers, 30, 40 square kilometers of land with a race course in the middle of it to develop in China. And we would fly out as a business probably five days every month. And I got involved in, I think, because it was the acquisition side I had been working with Richard on. And so I was brought in to sort of help and assist. And we'd go out for three, four, five days every month because everybody had families in Ireland and, you know, wouldn't have spent much more time there. And also, you know, nobody was going to move to China. So it, it started to get more and more momentum. And I could see there was a point where we needed to show more commitment than just like flying out and showing schemes and design evolution. And I knew that nobody was going to move out there. And at the same time, I was kind of having these sort of cold sweats of like having spent two years in Dublin, like the market is small enough. And, you know, you go to enough dinners, enough award ceremonies, you kind of know everybody, even if you're only two years in, if you've been lucky enough to give the exposure that I was. And I kind of had this fear. It's like I could see these guys who were working on, you know, mid-sized projects that Ireland provide. You know, there's not huge mega projects there. And I could kind of see I could blink and I'd be 50. And, you know, that was my career. I could see, you know, you go to the rugby and you work here and you socialize there. And it's like, ah, there's got to be a bit more than that. So I wrote to Rich and Johnny. I didn't approach them. I wrote formally to them. And I said, this is where we are in China. And this is what's happening, as you know. And I believe that we need to show proper commitment. We need to have somebody on the ground over there. And my guess is that it's going to be difficult to find that person because people have got kids in schools, et cetera, et cetera. And, but, you know, if you want, I'm happy to, I'm happy to go. And anyway, I sent them this, this letter and they came in and sat me down and said, are you serious? And I was like, yeah, look, I, I am. And I'm sure I'm not your first choice. I'm sure there's more capable people, but they're not going to go for you. So I'm happy to be the point person. And then when you guys come over every month, I can help facilitate and keep the ball rolling in between. So they were like, sure. And they were like, are you, are you sure about this? I mean, China's a big move. And I said... I'll guarantee you two years. I said, I'll go. And even after six months, if I if I hate it or if I don't like it or I, I, if I can't handle it, I will handle it and I will stay there for two years. And after that, if it works out, then I can do whatever I want. They were like, fine. So um, January 2006, we all got on the plane for our weekly kind of monthly, meet, monthly meeting. 
landed and uh, everybody got back on the plane at the end of the week except for me and I had a suite in the Western Hotel on the Bund and uh, <laughs> had to stay there and find my way. So it was it was amazing, but there was definitely downsides to that. I won't lie about that. But just before we go into into that in a bit more detail, this is sort of the your your third sort of career sort of career year, isn't it? Sort of post university. Mm-hmm. Um, you're establishing a bit of sort of a reputation there in terms of you know for I'm not sure if it's if it's sort of a risk taker in terms of sort of the sort of supreme sort of self confidence about first of all it's treasury holdings or or bust, isn't it? In terms of getting getting that job out of university, and and now it's you know being the, the first man in China full time um, and saying, right, you'll, you'll give it you give it two, uh, two years. Were you a, you know, were you a big gambler? Were you a big sort of risk taker or, or did you have this sort of innate sort of self-confidence? I did. Look, I've definitely got self-confidence. I'm actually a very shy person. You know, I, I you know, it's, it's great. The current work we do, which we're going to later is about collaboration. And, but I'm lucky to have a business partner who is, loves to talk and is very personable and he can up front that and then I can just sort of bring the sort of the intellect and the thinking and the and the checks to it. So I'm actually quite shy, but I, I even, even uh, yeah, I have always, I guess I've had uh, probably on, on borderline, if not a little bit too much self-confidence. And so there was a, it was a bit of that. Yeah, I think it was probably mostly that, to be honest with you. And, and I definitely think I probably had more self-belief and arrogance than to go and chase stuff. Um, but also it's given the encouragement. I guess it was fueled, you know, you've got, you're watching these two guys and dealing directly with, with say, Richard on the acquisitions, you know, you, you could see him just going in and not winging it, but like doing a deal and seeing how it goes and then going, okay, let's do this and let's do that. And you're, you're seeing how those minds work to negotiate or structure something. And I guess you're absorbing that and you're going, okay, well, actually, what, how am I going to structure this for myself? And okay, I could notice that okay, Ireland, I've got these people working on these projects and they're probably more senior than me and I've got two or three jumps of the ladder. Whereas in China, I know that all these guys got kids, they're all comfy, they're not going to move. I guess it was that sort of like learning from the guys and how they structure on a much bigger on a much bigger level their, their company and, and what they're trying to achieve corporately and then kind of say, okay, well, actually, how can I structure something Within this, I mean, I did. I mean, I didn't want to go to China. It was like I didn't have like this love for it. But I guess it's all as an opportunity, and I guess I could do the struggle. And I probably was self-centered. I mean, I think about it now. I had a, a you know a girlfriend at the time. We've been at maybe a year or so, and I wrote that letter. Didn't even talked about it in hindsight. Uh, and next thing, all of a sudden, I guess from her point of view, it was like, oh, we've been going out for a year, and you've just volunteered to go to China without even telling me about it, and you've accepted the job, and that's obviously <laughs> going to terminate our relationship. I, I, you know, so I guess there was a, I guess it was a bit of everything, learning from them and following their footsteps, and maybe a bit of self-belief and a bit of arrogance if I did something like that to a girlfriend, I guess. Okay. Well, um, so we're firmly in Chapter 2, then, of, uh, of your career with the, uh, with the role in China. Tell us, tell us a little, a little bit more then in terms of how how successful that that chapter was, and, and ultimately what led you back to uh, uh, to Dublin and London. Um, yeah, it was. I mean, professionally, it was hugely successful. I mean, it was two years. I said I'd give them two years. I stayed for two years. At that point, we did a we bought the the the, the race course. Ironically, didn't happen, and I think some of those Chinese government officials broke me that deal. Ended up in prison, so I won't say more about that. Uh, we then did a couple of other deals with Stanley Ho out of out of Macau, 
and a few shopping centers and put them together into a fund and we uh, IPO'd it in London. And that was successful, literally like just in time, 2007, about two weeks before the world collapsed. But at, at that point, I could have stayed on in China, but I started, I guess, for the first time thinking about career versus personal life and balance. I went from that sort of young, aggressive, pursuing career and building career into like thinking about the balance because it, China was difficult. China was awesome, a lot of fun. And I always said if I could move 50 mates and friends and family there, I probably would have stayed doing development there. But, you know, friends were trying to get married. I'd be sitting in the evening in China by myself looking at pictures of weddings I should have been at. And it just got quite lonely. And so I started to realize I needed a, a better balance. And as I said to the guys, if we if I spent two years in, if I did my work and helped successfully achieve what we wanted to achieve then I could come back and have a sort of a choice of stuff. And, and, and Battersea came up. At that point, Richard had moved. He got China had become so successful that Richard, one of the co-founders, had moved to China at that stage. And Rob Ticknell, who then went to Battersea as well, moved his family to China. So by the end, there was the three of us as a unit really doing a lot of great work out there. But we all felt, certainly myself and Rob felt it was time to, to move back. And at that point, they were thinking about buying Battersea. And... Um, had just signed it and realized that it was 8 million square feet, multi-complex development. It probably was more akin to the kind of stuff that we'd done in China of scale than anything in, say, the Ireland portfolio. And so they offered to both of us at that chance to, to come back. So we found suitable people to replace me as head of development and Rob as the CEO in China and uh, came back and, and worked on Battersea. Well, then. This will be sort of um, a, a development that that, that has sort of touched or sort of has been happening around lots of the sort of people's careers as they've been developing who've who've been sort of, who will be listening to this pod. So let's jump in. So tell us about how uh, what was the first day like? First day was tiring. I had met so many nice friends and, and people in China that they gave me a a, a great send off. So much so that I missed my flight uh, at the Virgin courtesy car had been downstairs beeping its horn outside my apartment in Shanghai I woke up I had 32 missed calls I was like oh my god so I had to get a different flight like six hours later via Hong Kong got me back to London at four in the morning I got into the Sloan Square Hotel not enough time to even sleep because I knew I wouldn't wake up again so I think I had my first bath in 20 years to pass the time and then I walked from Sloan Square down to the power station I'd been there before but I was getting there for seven in the morning so I'd like you know an hour or two in the hotel and then that was amazing I'll never forget because I lived in Ballasey Park now and I, I do that walk all the time and every time I walk down there we are coming past the Lister Hospital and the, the chimneys just appear over Chelsea Bridge and that like that it was it was an amazing moment there was a sort of a not a cleansing but a moment of transition psychologically from getting off the plane from China and having had two really intense years there to then arriving in London. And I, it was the moment I crossed the bridge and saw the chimneys, it, it was that sort of moment. And then straight in. So, you know, a, a tough first day trying to pretend that I hadn't missed my flight and I wasn't completely knackered. But uh, it was a good start. It got better. I mean, um, out of interest, how much of the of the history of Battersea, or, you know, well, the checkered history of, of, of that site, how, how daunting was that to you? Mm. Positives and negatives. Like, uh, for those, I mean, this was 2008. 
when we sort of bought it. So it had been decommissioned in 83. So you had a lot of time and it had been John Broom who sort of with McAlpine took the roof off and demolished the upper walls and scrapped all the equipment in it. And then it was Parkview, had it for 13 years and fun fairs and hotels and all these sort of wacky ideas that frankly couldn't pay for what is probably the most expensive building in Europe. So, but the benefit of that using that as, as your capital, like if we had gone in as the first developer of the power station, then we would have had years of probably tougher negotiations with Heritage England or Homes England as it was at the time. Uh, not Homes England, uh, Historic England and, and once were council. But they had had like failed promises and failed promises and failed promises. So there was a wariness that they had about another proposal, but there was also a lot of the legwork done by the others to prove that it wasn't easy. And it's like, you know what? It isn't easy. And these guys have proven why financially it's not viable with 4 million square feet and financially it's not viable with this and why you need a tube station, why you need to do it properly. So we kind of used all of those wasted years by the previous developers to sort of position ourselves as the proof points to guys, this isn't going to be easy and it's going to require collaboration and it's going to require, you know, wins and losses on both sides. You know, they say like the best negotiations are where you, everybody walks away feeling a bit like they've won and a bit like they've lost. And I think... That history gave us the platform to have really serious, challenging conversations early. Whereas I think a lot of the time developers come in on challenging projects. And if you're the first person in, everybody's skeptical. It's like, oh, you're trying to pull a fast one. You're trying to make more money than you should be. Whereas actually on this one, we didn't have as much skepticism maybe because other developers have proven how difficult it was for us in a way. Now, I talk an awful lot about sort of chapters in people's careers, you know, acceleration, consolidation, and then, and then spark. You know, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure I've spotted a, a chance for you to rest and sort of consolidate because it's been sort of um, uh, sort of naught to 60 on, on, on ev- every chapter. But there's something you can't, you can't sort of influence, I suspect, sort of around sort of 2008, sort of global financial crisis. Yeah. How hard did that bite the plans for Battersea and and, and just as much your your career, I suspect. Yeah, so I was I was at Battersea for ten years, and so it was almost a game of two halves, almost exactly two halves, five years, five years. So first two five years were with Treasury Holdings, we're getting the planning approvals. So although it was two thousand and eight, like we weren't selling anything. So I guess the money allowed us to work through that first half of the recession by getting planning approval. Like you had to get planning approval if you had to sell anything. So. We had the sort of funds to do that. And I guess the banks and the funders at that stage knew that a site with no planning permission was not worth very much. And they probably thought, okay, here's a team that is capable enough to go and secure that permission. And so they, they gave us the finances that we needed. So that's all from, let's say, 28 up until 2012. And that's how long it takes to get planning on, on these projects, which is itself is a problem with with global planning systems. But we're not going to get to that now. And and so that was fine. It kind of We kind of felt sort of insulated from the recession but then you know this, the fortune what happened you know 80 percent of our of our portfolio value of treasury holdings sat in ireland and ireland got really whacked as we all know and and i guess the banks saw the power station as the most valuable asset to maybe pilfer resell and and um i mean pilfer isn't fair because it's their funding but you know what i mean i would say they pulled the plug too early but um in any case they did and so the site that we'd all bled to get approval, planning approval for, and sell a vision that was more than buildings and community and change, 
let alone the tube station, was then sort of was then sort of pulled and, and Treasury Holdings were lost the site. And at that point, you know, I'd worked with the company for well over ten years and they were like, you know, you could come to you can come back to China, you can go back to Ireland. It's like, look, I, I need to see this see this project through. And if we were thirty two people full time at the power station, probably twenty five of those left and about seven of us said that okay, we've got to make a, a tough career choice here and and we have to, we can either, if we really believe in this project, we need to fund ourselves, sit back and try and see who's going to buy the site and then position ourselves as being the right people to deliver it. And so the day we got the planning approval, the day the section 106 was signed was the day that the banks pulled the plug. So it was a real, um, it, was a, it, was a, it was a great day securing the planning approval. It was a horrible day losing control of the site. But a bunch of us or a couple of us decided to say, well, we're going to stay with it. And so... In January 2012, up until probably September 2012, September 4th, when the Malaysians bought it and said that, okay, we want you to structure a new development company and to execute this project on us. And fair play to them because, you know, they could have gone to British Land or Stanhope or any of these sort of DM guys. And they said, you know what? No, you've got it this far and you've got the embedded energy and the embedded knowledge. And um, you know this application and the locals and we're going to go with you. So it was... It was that was heartbreaking for me because of the Irish link as well. You know, I I, I still work for Johnny um, on multiple projects now as a as a consultant in in Dublin, and and Richard I'm still in contact with, and having dinner with him in the new year. So it was really hard for me to see that Irish connection being disconnected. But you know, I had to move on and make friends with the new owners and and try and see through what we all believe really strongly with. All right. Well, then that's a really nice sort of segue. Tell us a, a little bit more about sort of how that how that sort of how you particularly sort of managed that transition, because although there was lots of sort of familiarity, presumably yeah, this was almost like getting a new job, right? You've got you've certainly got a new boss. You've got someone else who, who you need sort of to build up that rapport with and show them what what you can you can do. How easy was that? And how, and how did you manage it? I didn't really want any part in like brokering the deal with the with the Malaysians. And at that point I'd had a pretty full on career to that point. You know, it was it was a lot of hard work, you know, building my career. So I, I said I said to the guys, I said, look, I'm here, you know, there's three of us, you know, I'm doing development, probably your CEO, you know, Simon, you're on on finance. You guys are better place to structure that deal, but I still want to work on the development side of it. So uh, I'm gonna go and take six months and travel the world and write a book about urbanism and actually write one about why developers doing more considered development is better for their bottom line. Like it is a sort of virtuous circle of, of return that like what's you know better for a place is better for people and therefore better for profit. And so I kind of, I spent time writing that book and had it sort of published and maybe in August 20, whatever year it was, 12. And then September, luckily the Malaysians won the site and they were like, we're good to go almost like i put the pen down and walk back into the job so for me it was a nice transition it was nice to sort of travel the world see hundreds of projects um connected with lots of developers who took me around their schemes and showed me cities and places and i took that knowledge back and i guess then when i arrived back i mean i i, I don't recommend i'd be going on amazon buying the book it's probably out of date now but it was enough at the time to position me within the company for them to think that, okay, this guy knows about sort of place and strategy and positioning that actually I could carve out a real niche in that new company. So I kind of transitioned from general development at Treasury Holdings into more sort of the value outside 
planning, positioning, placemaking, tenancy, mix to create a great place in, in, in the second half. So it was really, it was, it was great for me to be given that opportunity in the second half of the Battersea career, if you will. Um, and, and that was, a, that was, a, that was a, a changing arc. That was specializing, I guess. That was a career specialism rather than general development at that point. So you know, you've, you've talked about it a bit, uh, a career at Battersea being in two halves. You know, we're now firmly into that sort of uh, second half, second semester of, uh, of those Battersea days. Tell us a bit more in terms about sort of how that's affected you and, and in particular maybe what you're learning. Yeah, it was, um, I guess it was applying vision at a planning level into execution on the ground you know so we talked about we had written this place book this 260 page book about the vision of Battersea and what it might what it might be and then it was again just testing that and executing it and and that was really interesting and have the Malaysians make a leap of faith I mean they kind of arrived at the start going mm, not so cynical about or not so sure about placemaking and this placemaking book it's a bit far-fetched and actually going through the process of, of working with them to understand that that is ultimately what drove values, you know, record residential sales or the lease to Apple. I mean, Apple didn't necessarily read the the, the, um, the office brochures that we produced. They read that 260-page statement about this place would be. I met them in on a project in, uh, in my current job in San Francisco a couple of years ago, and they were like, that book was what could have grabbed us. So it was, a, it was putting that into practice and actually seeing, you know, empirical proof of here are some of the initiatives that we did and then here is how it drove value and I don't just mean economic value to the developer because that's you know I think you know the the press of Battersea was very positive at the start and then it gets a bit hazy at the end I think the gold press is that way where it's like you build something up and then you chip away and once the power station was saved then it's easier to, to chip a little and and there's so many phenomenal stories of the power station about you know the local employment about you know 1500 computers to local kids during covid to the people who come there at weekends the activation 3 million people coming to locals coming to the site there's so many strong stories that i think it is the ultimate proof of and is emerging even as the power station building itself opens next year to go to a whole next next level but it is a real proving point about how you can bring sort of place social value alongside development value and, and all parties can win the local authority can win with new transport, affordable housing, the developer could win in terms of funding and development, and the locals could win in terms of jobs, creation, and amenity. So I think a lot of people outside of the UK almost recognize that more than people in the UK. And we started getting lots of phone calls saying, hey, you know, I know you wrote this book and you've been working at the power station. Could you come and talk to us? And, you know, there was an opportunity in couple of projects in in America come chat to us. There was even the guys at White Bay Power Station Sydney were like, we'd pay if you fly over. And it was like, so I started thinking, you know, there's a there's a career in this. And I like the visioning position, but I'm, I'm not the ultimate person to execute development. So we built phase one, the power station was on site. Phase three was on site. They were sold, they were leased to Apple. It seemed like a point, okay, I've been here 10 years. Maybe let's let's make a move. And And so with two other guys, that had worked with me as consultants in the power station we started having lunch and chatting about actually is there a business that can sort of do that sort of visioning play strategy execution strategy for developers that have been sort of calling as as a business and we decided to take a leap of faith and and start that 
So this is now a, a fantastic sort of segue then and sort of you know opening up a, bra- a brand new sort of chapter in your your career as sort of as it you know, appears you, you're picking up sort of variety of people all wanting your expertise. But why word search place? What what was it about that that setup that that brand that that made it to be that one when it could have been lots of other things? Could have been Dave, you know Dave Tuig uh, 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 Ltd. You know why why that? Um. People first, security second, I think. So William Murray, who's my business partner and co-owner, um, it was a, a part owner of Word Search and, and his father, you know, Peter Murray founded Word Search. You know, back when Word Search, it was about Blueprint Magazine and architectural commentary and a broadgate and repositioning ideas. It was when it was like, not about branding, but about real visionary thinking about developments in a new way. And then, so WordSearch always had this sort of kind of like progressive element to it, but it was definitely a branding agency. But William had worked with me closely at at, um, at Battersea and the visioning and the positioning, and we just got on really well together. So we started having lunch and I said, look, people are calling. They're looking for this opportunity for advice and to learn from the power station. And there's a business opportunity here in which he also saw. And he said, OK, let's let's do it. And, and then WordSearch sort of said, OK, before you guys go and do this, you know, you we could ha- we're happy to be the machine behind you. You know, we can give you the finance. We can give you, we've got eight offices around the world. We can give you the credibility of not just being two random guys knocking on the door and saying, hey, related, can you, uh, we can give you some advice, but actually, hey, we know what we're doing. So it also allowed us to do the work. Like we spent the last four years just doing the work and not having to worry about it, accounts and reports and invoicing because we have that machine behind us. So it was, it was a bit of security, to be honest with you. And I remember like, you know, we talked about earlier on doing that sort of interview with Johnny Ronan and setting up that fake interview. It, it, was, it was a bit of a cheeky start here too. And so far as that related, who did Hudson Yards in New York, we're doing another big project in Chicago. And we had convinced them to sort of give us a shot at running some workshops, give us some advice. And um, I don't think I can be sued anymore by the power station. But I kind of did that on, a, on, 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 uh, on annual leave just before I left, because I needed to test the concept. Is this going to work? And um, and so we went out, we did a couple of days with them, and it was phenomenally successful. I mean, they still talk about it. They still say they got through planning quicker than any other master maker development in the US. And they cited, and that project of 78 is cited as one of the most successful approaches. It, that was just a catalyst, right? This is a, this is a goer. And I had very open conversations with Battersea and, and I went across and, and word search backed us. And, you know, now we've got our own reputation. You know, word search place is a huge brand in the US, you know, in the Middle East, you know, in the UK. We've worked with Seller, with Delancinaris Court, Meridian Water. And, but I think now there's also a little confusion at this stage now. People are like, oh, word search is a branding agency. So why would you do real estate strategy? So there's also, I think now that there's a, there's probably a little confusion, it probably works less in our favor than they did at the start. And so we're actually, coincidentally, it's funny you asked the question, because in January, you know, this month, we're going to be rebranding ourselves as a completely independently owned company called Murray Tuig, Roland Word Search Place. But it was a hugely important um, security that they gave us to to start what, what became a, a huge venture. So David, thank you very much. Now, I think we're now sort of bang up to date. So... We can, I think we can maybe sort of ter- turn our sort of perspective now from looking backwards to looking forwards. So what what's next? What's the the next sort of whether it's a career milestone or next sort of goal for you? What what are you gunning for? 
So, I mean, the consultancy side has been amazing and like it's, it's grown. We, we went in at the start helping people having a, a, establishing a vision. Like, like, what are you trying to achieve? Who is it for? Why will they come? Really thinking about it rather than just buildings for buildings sake. And then that's grown into, you know, we've done a project last month where we're doing the financial appraisals, we're doing the phasing, we're doing the real estate strategy, we're looking at the market research in terms of demand in the area and actually building a full end-to-end sort of um, development solution, but always built around, you know, the place side of it and, you know, focusing on, on sort of people and value. And so that's going really well. And, and you know, we want to continue to grow that. But then I guess there's the development side. I mean, we have in four years now that, you know, that sort of pulls at the old heartstrings, the the execution side. And, and so we're also now starting to look at going into active development ourselves and sort of running consultancy with active development, but always doing that development partner. So having people who are better placed to do the heavy lifting the execution, but we're looking at the front end vision, positioning, planning, leasing, you know, building advocates for it. And we've just bought our, our first site was through a Homes England public tender, 40 acres. I think we've built off and beat off a lot of competition because I think it was a really strong vision that the community bought into, the local authority bought into, Homes England could see was probably the highest financial performance. So that's sort of going back to development to use it as a, as a proof point, to prove that that virtuous circle of, everybody can win you know it's, it's about the city winning about the developer winning but the local community winning that everybody can have the right solution we don't have to build lowest common denominator crap to think we make the most amount of money you know you build the best stuff will make you more money and so i think putting that into practice that's what we're sort of going into now but still wanted to always maintain that consultancy side because that's where the ideas come from and if we're working on seven of the largest projects in north america you get so many ideas that then you want to bring into practice, bring into practice. And if we just focus on development, I think then we'll we'll lose the learning, always learning, always learning, always learning. So it's balancing those two bits is, is our next step, I guess, in the next 12 to 18 months. Now, given you, you, you're sort of, you spent only 20 years in, in real estate and sort of real estate sort of development, I wanted to ask you your your opinion on success. And and whether you think sort of you know from what you sort of hinted at in those very early days at sort of treasury in terms of you know what what was driving you and motivating you there, has your opinion on what constituents sort of success has that changed over time? It's interesting. We it's if we actually we start every project with a um, what does success mean for you professionally and, and personally when we when we go on a project. You might have a project team of twenty, and it's important. Because everybody like professors go like, oh, to make lots of money. It's like, well, you can't use that one because proper development have to be profitable. So that's a given. What like what else do you want to achieve? And more often than not, like when people lift their head up from their computer and the whirlwind of emails and cost plans and execution, everybody wants to do good stuff. Everybody wants to do projects, no matter how cutthroat you think people are. Uh, you know, you pick that person, he'll never say that. And they come up with the most profoundly like, I want to make a difference, or I want to bring my grandchildren here and say that I did this or I influenced it. And um, I do think that that probably is success. It, you know, it, it's just having projects that you can look back on, whether we self-deliver them like this new one we're buying or whether it's just having a hand in, in helping developers just steer onto a, onto a slightly better course. And you can say, I had a little role to play in that or walk around with pride. I think, you know, that's the bit. It's, you know, I've got this 
I've got this black and white photo montage on, on the wall in my office of like the sort of 24, 25 projects we worked on over the last year or two, um, showing them what they were like before they change. And I, it, you know, you take pride in them. So yeah, it's look, once you've managed to pay your mortgage and, and once you can feed your family, I think your priorities change. It's not about increasing your bank balance. It's about doing stuff that you enjoy and, uh, and are, are good projects. Okay. Now, before we wrap up the session, let me ask you one last question then. And sort of, you know, given that, you know, the career you've had and all, all this, the success you've enjoyed and the sort of the, and it's in some ways the mark, the mark you've left so far. Um, what would you say is the most important lesson you've learned that the audience could benefit from? Oh, I don't know. I'm definitely not the person to be asking that question of. Um, I, I think maybe because the world has changed a bit. Like, you know, we, we were, you might have gone into a 20-year career before. And maybe that's what feared me while I left Dublin straight away because maybe the guys who are working there were the 20, 25-year career guys with the one company and you, your eyes would blink and your career would be over doing the same thing. And I think we know now that young talent moves and changes and stays fluid. You know, it might be like sort of like I think it's three or four-year job cycles in, in the tech industry and real estate is kind of increasingly the same. People jump and move between things. And I think... By doing that, I guess people are almost, whether they're full-time employees, but they're almost self-employed in a way. They should almost think, that, I would say they should, people should think about themselves as freelancers slash self-employed because it's about a career arc. Okay, if I do this, I'm going to learn this, I'm going to get paid that job, and then I'm going to move this, I'm going to do that, and then I'm going to move here. I guess think about yourself, even if, you, even if you're not self-employed, if you are in employment, the likelihood is that you're going to move and change and find new things that challenge and interest you. And therefore, in that case, you are in a way a self-employed person or a freelancer because you're controlling the arc in your own direction and you're thinking about your next move. So I think everybody should think about, you know, obviously have respect and, and for the company and the project and these things are collaborative, but also be thinking about, you know, what is my career path and I'm working for myself and who am I? Who am I in the real estate industry and what do I add rather than I'm just going to turn up and get a job and, and sit there? I don't know if that makes sense, but it feels like the way the world is going a little, you know, the value is in the people rather than in the talent, rather than just the, the projects or the companies. Well, I, 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 def, I definitely think you're on, on something there. Um, but David, I, I could honestly sort of sit here and sort of chat, chat about this for, for hours, but we've got, to, we've got to sort of call it to a, um, a close. So thank you so much for sort of sharing the story. Um, I, have, I have thoroughly enjoyed it, mate. So thank you very much. Cool. Thanks for having me. The Urban Land Institute is the oldest and largest network of cross-disciplinary real estate and land use experts in the world, with more than 45,000 global members. The ULI's ethos of personal development makes them an ideal collaborator on our podcast, and we encourage our listeners to learn more and become members by signing up at uli.org forward slash join, quoting the promo code ACRE. Thank you for listening.